Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we bow before you and we come to one who loves righteousness. And God, we confess that we are not. We thank you for the righteousness of Christ that is ours and that we can stand before you because of him. We thank you, Father, that in him we, uh, we have been given such wonderful privileges. And God, we come tonight with uh, mouths wide open asking that you would fill them. God, we pray that you would find in us hearts that are willing to hear and to obey whatever you say to us. God, we ask that you would make us willing and obedient. God, we don't want to give you a, a, a grudging obedience, but God, a, a willing obedience that it would not just be a, a, an external compliance, but that our hearts would be glad to hear your words and to obey them. Father, we are grateful that you have spoken to us, that you've given us your word, and that it is as real and relevant and authoritative today as it was when you first spoke it, when you first had men to write it. We're grateful, Father, that it is sufficient for us and that your spirit still speaks to our hearts through your word that you still illuminate and and work in us so god we ask that you come near tonight and do your good work father we thank you for the again the privileges that we know we thank you that we can gather tonight we do think of Others who cannot, we think of the Chavezes and uh, the restrictions that they are in in this other country. And God, we especially think of the health situations uh, that they're dealing with right now and limited access to medicine. God, we ask that you would help them and we ask that you would give them much grace as they seek your face and seek how best to adjust to the information that they've been given. God, we pray and ask that you would help them. We pray that you would be a, a very present help to them right now in their time of trouble. And that you would, as they lean on you, make their path straight. Father, we pray for members of our body who 
are sick and hurting and uh, ask God for your comfort to them. God, we pray for others whose hearts are burdened and heavy and for reasons, God, we may not even know about why, but God, you know. And God, we trust that you are our help, the same God who's been our help in ages past, that you're still our help. And we pray, God, that you would come near and show yourself to be the God of all comfort to them. God, we need you tonight. We ask that you would tune our hearts to sing your grace. That our ears would be turned heavenward. Speak, Father. Your servants listen. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1529, the German reformer Martin Luther wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And this was 12 years from the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. 12 years removed from that monumental time in the church. Think of all of the things that happened from 1517 until 1529 when Luther wrote this hymn. He nailed the 95 Theses to the castle door in Wittenberg. He debated a Catholic scholar on the fact that the scriptures alone must be the sole authority of the church. He writes about the priesthood of all believers and denies the authority of the Pope, who is considered to be the head of the Roman Catholic Church. There was the Diet of Worms, where he may have famously said, Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. He did that as he stared down the empire that was known as the Roman Catholic Church. Not only that, but the German Bible was printed and published and distributed all throughout Germany. And to add to all of this, he got married to Catherine von Boren. So, a chocked full, a busy 12 years. A 12 years where the Lord was at work in uh, Protestant Reformation in the life of Martin Luther. But think of it also, during this time, it wasn't all roses for Luther. He was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church, which from the Roman Catholic perspective meant this, that there was no hope of salvation for him any longer. He was cut off from God. Also during this time, there were several attempts to kidnap and murder him. But in God's providence, Luther is spared through the kindness of other like-minded believers and through the kindness of political leaders. So in the tempest and the blessing of these 12 years, Luther sought refuge in God. He taught the Psalms in the seminary there in Wittenberg. He knew well the doctrinal and theological depths of the Psalms, particularly of this notion of God as the refuge of his people. However, Luther also knew the experiential depths of these truths, of this truth. The, the hymn that I mentioned earlier was not merely a doctrinal or a theological concept for Luther. Rather, it was his past and it was his present experience. He knew firsthand that God was a refuge for his people, a mighty refuge. And so this brings us to our psalm, Psalm 11. 
David, like Martin Luther, loved to write and loved to sing about God being the refuge of his people. He loved it so much that David, he used this illustration, this picture of God, roughly 40 times throughout the Psalms. It's obvious that he wanted Israel to sing this out, to know it, to meditate upon it, and for it to stick in their hearts and be a reality that they lived upon. And it's also obvious that God wants us to see the same truth, that he is our only refuge, the only one sufficient for us to take refuge in. Well, tonight we'll look at Psalm 11 in three points. First, we'll look at the fortress of those who trust. Second, we'll look at the foolishness of those who doubt. And third, we'll look at the focus of those who trust. Well, let's look at point number one, the the fortress of those who trust. David opens this psalm with the declaration... In the Lord, I take refuge. In the first half of this opening line, David seeks to reveal to us a facet of the character of God. He wants us to look at the diamond of God's character and turn it and see something more. The term Lord, capital L-O-R-D, it isn't to be passed over without taking notice. We can't just read over it and assume it to be another Bible word. It's pregnant with meaning for the people of God, and for those who are yet outside the camp. When the Bible uses this term to describe God, Lord, three things are revealed about Him. It reveals that He is eternal, that He is self-existent, that He is, as we've been learning on Wednesday nights, a covenant-keeping God. So He's eternal. He has no beginning and He has no ending. Before creation, before time and space, he was. And though the earth and the heavens will perish and wear out like a garment, he will remain on into endless ages. He does not exist in time as we do, as he is, but though he is active in time and space. God is self-existent. He has no need for anyone or anything He depends on nothing and no one outside of himself for his own existence. He is utterly self-sufficient. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, God reveals these two facets of his character to Moses when he calls him to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt. In these verses we read, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The eternal one, the self-existent one. Moses is my man, and I'm coming to deliver you. But this title, Lord, it also shows us that God is a covenant-keeping God. He always keeps the promises that he makes to his people, without exception, without question. He has kept his covenant, he is keeping his covenant, and he will forever keep his covenant. 
When he says that he will keep his covenant, it is as good as kept. Mark it down. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, Moses declares to the children of Israel, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. To a thousand generations is just a Hebrew way of saying to the uttermost, everlastingly. Therefore, David understood. And listen, my dear friends, we must understand that God is an eternal refuge. That God is a self-existent refuge. And that He is a covenant-keeping refuge for His people. Believer, think about it with me. The Lord awakened you to the wrath to come. He caused you to see that you were in the wide open place on the path of destruction. He caused you to see that you were the manslayer and that the avenger of blood was on your heels and He would not relent until justice was executed, until you were slain in the way. However, God intervened. He provided the city of refuge in Christ to to you. Even you. By faith in the person and work of Christ, you were given entrance into this city, this fortress, this refuge. In Christ, justice that was on your heels, out for your blood, in an instant smiled and asked no more of you. In Christ, you were, you are, and forever will be safe. From the first time that you sought refuge in Him until now, believer, have you not found Him to be all that He says He is in this title, Lord? Take heart. Ponder this in your mind. Meditate on it as you lie. uh, Hopefully not awake tonight, but if you do, ponder this. He will not crumble. He will not wear away. He will not break His promise to you, His covenant with you. He is a mighty fortress. None can take you away from Him. You are sheltered in His refuge, in the shadow of His wings, both now and forevermore. But unbeliever, have you sought refuge for your soul in the Lord? Truly, have you sought it? If not, the wrath and curse of God are building like a storm cloud of destruction, fury, and hatred over you. Don't build a paper mache refuge of your own good works or your own religious accomplishments. You and your accomplishments, your righteousness, are a refuge that cannot withstand the stormy blast. If you do not seek refuge in the Lord, you will be exposed to the fullness of His wrath and curse for eternity. So, if you've seen the hand of God raised up against you in times past or now, if you've been convicted of sin, 
know that you are outside of the camp. You know you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have not come to Him. If you've known that His wrath abides on sinners and you are one, then run to Him today. Desperately. Flee to Him. Have no peace for your soul. Run. Well, second, in Psalm 11, we see the foolishness of those who doubt. Knowing that the Lord is the only refuge for his soul, David turns to his companions and asks a crucial question. See, he says this, How can you say to my soul, that is to me, how can you speak to me in this way? Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, the exact backdrop or setting of Psalm 11 isn't 100% clear. Some think that Psalm 11 was written by David when Saul was hunting him. Others think that it was written during the time when Absalom was hunting him. But regardless of the time frame that we choose, this much is true in both instances. The government of Israel had become corrupted and the foundations of righteous government were disappearing. They were crumbling. It seemed as though the victory of the wicked was imminent because just the basic principles of mercy and goodness and justice had fallen away in this culture, in this society. The leaders had rejected God fundamentally. But not only this, but wicked men in Israel were armed and ready and looking for an opportunity to ambush, to kill David and his companions. The minds of these men were made up. Their hearts were hardened Their wills were bent on evil. So it's for these reasons that David's companions think it's best for him to head for the hills, to seek security elsewhere. The response of these men, though well-meaning, I do honestly think that. I want to give a judgment of charity to these men. They were concerned for their friend. But their response does reveal a lack of confidence and trust in God to keep and protect his people. However, David's response reveals an astounding confidence and trust in God. Think with me for a moment. The words and actions of David's companions, like I said, reveals a lack of confidence and trust in God. So what were these men doing? Well, they had focused their attention. They had sought to focus David's attention, not on God, not on the one who was the Lord, the one in whom we must take refuge. They sought to focus David's attention on the desperate situation concerning Israel's government and the plots of the wicked. Now, being David and being his friends, it's not a bad thing to think about these things. They need to to think. They need to plan. But again, though well-meaning, what we see from David's response 
Can you hear it in his voice? How can you say this? How? The Lord is our refuge. How can you say, run? Is he not our shield? Is he not our refuge? If their words had been taken to heart and applied by David, he would have put his hope for Israel and for himself in a false or faulty refuge. So what, would, what is God teaching us through David's companions, through really what David would reveal to us, the absurdity of their statements? Well, as David's companions looked out, they became overwhelmed. They looked out at the government. They looked out at the wicked men who were plotting against them, thinking they're out there. And they let those situations engulf them. It's good to think about those things. It's good to plan. But when those things take hold of you and seemingly master you, then there is the problem. It is easy to look at our nation. It's easy to look at our families or other immediate circumstances and react based on what we see or at least what we think we see. We can become anxious, fearful, and discouraged. We can become angry, bitter, and resentful. We can become careless, indifferent, and even fatalistic. If or when we become like this, inevitably the thoughts of our minds work their way out into our words and our actions. And we, like David's companions, speak weakening words. Words that confuse. Words that distract. Words that shift the focus off of God. Words that ultimately are weightless and fall by the wayside. So what are we to do in order to not be as David's companions? Well, we must heed God's command in Psalm 46 Verse 10, David writes, be, excuse me, God says, David records, be still or cease striving. Let go of your hold upon this. Relinquish it to God. Entrust it to Him. And know, so be still or cease striving and know that He is God. Now this know Be still and know that He is God. It is to perceive and see, to find out and discern. If we are going to fix ourselves, fix our eyes upon the living and true God, the Lord, as He's described in the first line of Psalm 11, then we must be still. We must seek to know Him. The idea is not just kind of a blank knowing Just knowing a a fact like you would know a fact out of a history book. But it's to be opening, as it were, the scriptures and have an ever increasing perception, a finding out of his character so that you can know and you can be still. So we must be still and know that he is God. But we must also join Micah. As he writes in Micah chapter 7, verse 7, saying, But as for me, I will look 
That is, I will lean forward. I will expectantly peer out into the distance because I want to see God. I want to look upon Him. So we must be still and know and we must look. For He is the God of our salvation. He will hear us. We must habitually be still and know that He is God. And we must habitually look to Him in all things and for all things. Only after we have done these things will we be able to speak out of the abundance of a calm, steady, God-saturated heart. It is then that our speech will be gracious, seasoned with soul-preserving salt. It is then that our actions will have to them the aroma of Christ and we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, that's what David's companions are teaching us. What about David himself? What is God teaching us through David? Well, what I just mentioned that we need to do is what David did. David is a real help to us here. He sets his focus on. He looks to God in the midst of Israel's governmental, political situation, in the midst of the wicked the wicked men's pursuit of him and his companions. But think with me for a moment. As we would think about, as we would discuss, as we would be involved with governmental and political situations, presidential election, those are just a few that are on the forefront, on the front burner of things that we may be thinking about now. But think about other things that are going on in our culture, in our society. Do think about abortion. I recently heard the stat that on 9-11, 3,000 souls entered into eternity. They perished that day. But then someone immediately in that uh, Twitter thread, yes, guilty as charged, wrote underneath there, that is horrific, that is cause to mourn, it is a tragedy, but 3,000 unborn children are slaughtered in their mother's womb every day. There's human trafficking. People are, children and young adults are ripped from their families. There's rioting. We think of uh, Seattle, Portland, Minneapolis. Most recently, you could think of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Think of all the racial tension going on in our culture, our society. To boot, throw in there the wildfires that are going on in the West Coast right now. But also think about yourself as an individual, your marriage, our families, our friendships, our job, this church, this city, this state. In all of those scenarios and situations, there, there is, we are a cauldron of needs. In all of those areas, situations, and scenarios, we must be still and look to God. 
before, as we would think, before we would speak, before we would act. We must be still before Him. We must look to Him. And listen, each of these things that I just mentioned has the potential to take over, to crowd out, to turn us away from a look to our God. But in verses 4 through 7, David shows us this, not only are we to, well, who and what we are to be still before and look to. In the midst of all of these uh, things that I just mentioned under you know, what God is teaching through David, there needs to be a picture that steadies us, that settles us. And that brings us to our third and final point. The focus of those who trust. The focus of those who trust. In verses 4 through 7, David writes, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in, right, in heaven. Excuse me. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. David turns his focus out and away from his present situation to God. Specifically to the heavenly temple. To the heavenly throne. He looks to the one who is the supreme and righteous ruler over all. Over all creation. Over all the earth. He looks to the one who infinitely transcends the splendor and majesty of earthly kings, of earthly powers. He looks to the one who rules over all governments. The one who judges, repaying every person according to their deeds. In other words... David looks away from the turmoil and uncertainty of his present situation, of his present surroundings, to the God who alone is steadfast, immovable, and unshakable. As God is pictured here in his temple, on his throne, his activity is striking, is it not? From his throne in heaven, the Lord looks down upon all humanity. And He does something. He examines our hearts. He examines our minds. Really, our intentions, our motivations. All that is done, all that is done, whether it's public or private, all that is done lies before His eyes and He sees through it all. He takes no pains to discover anything because He perfectly knows each of us. He perfectly knows each situation. Looking down to the very bottom of our hearts. He looks upon each of us like that. But David goes on to write that the Lord examines or tests the righteous. His people. Those who belong to Him. David's present situation is a testimony to this reality, to the trying 
Lord who sits upon the throne of heaven. Think with me, if you will, in the account of Job. That entire book is a demonstration of God's testing the righteous. Read through the Acts of the Apostles and all of the letters of the Apostle Paul, and there you will see one who is righteous, who belongs to the Lord, steadily being tested, being examined. And if you look in the Gospels and you see the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, there you have a clear testimony to the fact that our God tries, He examines the righteous. But listen, take heart, you righteous ones, you who belong to the living and true God. The Lord does not do this to break His people or to be cruel to His people. Are you being tested? Are you being examined right now? Have you asked God? Have you gone before His throne and said, Why me? Why my marriage? Why my family? Asking why. Have you? Well, know that He does this to draw you closer to Himself. He does it to draw you closer to Himself and to enlarge your faith in Him. And listen, He will continue to do this, to examine you, to try you, to act as a hammer, to break, that He would refashion and remold, to act as a fire, that He would purify you. He will not stop doing this until you are made complete at the day of Jesus Christ. He intends for you to be like His Son. And the way, one of the ways in which He does that is through testing. So don't count it as cruelty. Don't count it as a God not loving you. The tests in so many ways demonstrate that you are loved by the living and true God. But as quickly as David speaks of this, of this love, of this examination of the righteous, he contrasts God's love for these with his hatred for those who love violence, cruelty, hatred, murder. These are all repulsive to him. When he says that his soul hates these things, when he says that his soul hates the one who loves violence, he hates them with his entire being. Do you grasp this? With his entire being. Infinite, eternal, almighty God coming up against finite lover of violence. Finite sinner. It seems as though that one, it would have been better for them not to have been born than to come up against this God. And the hatred of God, it must break forth. It must. He can't let things go undone. He can't let sin or sinners go unpunished. Now these judgments that are mentioned in verse 6, likely refer back to the cities of the plain, to Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen, whether we would really think about it or not, God was merciful to a degree with them. But then the sin 
of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah was complete. Their cup was full to the brim and God's wrath was poured out upon them. These cities were completely and thoroughly destroyed. And what David is saying here is that the wicked in this present situation, the ones who were hunting him, pursuing him to ambush him and kill him, they will be completely and thoroughly destroyed. If not in this life, most certainly in the one to come. The portion of their cup is judgment, and they will drink it down to the dregs. But why? Why must the wicked be judged? Well, let me put it to you like this. God acts as He does because He is who He is. He must judge the wicked because He is righteous. That is, He is morally right and just in all His ways. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, Moses writes, The rock, His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. God acts because He is righteous, but He also acts because He loves righteous deeds. He loves to carry out righteousness. He loves to make sinners righteous whether for the first time or in an ongoing way by His Spirit for the thousandth time. Your sanctification, believer, is a source of delight and joy for God because He delights to see you conformed more and more to the righteous standard of His law, to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves it. He delights to look down upon this earth and see it. He loves to see men and women, boys and girls, conformed to the image of Christ. And all who turn to Him inevitably become doers of righteousness. By so becoming doers of righteousness, we find that they behold His face. They behold His face. That is... The favor of God in Christ is turned toward you the first time. And in an ongoing way, believer, God in Christ turns His face toward you and you have His smile. He delights in you. He says of you on your best day and He says of you on your worst day, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. Why does He love you? Because you're His. Because He sees His Son. That is why. In Psalm 140, verse 13, David writes, Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. The upright. What a joy it is to be upright. To be a righteous one little r, and to be pursuing after righteousness. 
Well, how are we to live in light of these things? Know this, that the throne of judgment has become a throne of grace to all who come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. The throne of judgment has become a throne of grace to all who come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Believer, the sovereign king who has bought you at the price of his beloved son, blood, now rules over you. He is in his heavenly temple. He is on his heavenly throne. And he gives you access to him. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the king of glory, the ruler over all gives you, even you, access to him. Now. Now. Can you ponder that? You have access to that God. Now. The one who rules over the vast and unknown reaches of our universe, who rules over the subatomic molecules, viruses, and germs, over every presidential election, over all the riots, over your household, over your soul, he rules. Think of these words from the Lord Jesus Christ. He said to his apostles, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He rules. Not you, not anybody else. Christ. Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Job 42 verse 2. I know that you can do all things, Job says, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Think of Nebuchadnezzar as he said these words. This conquered man. He says, and none can stay your hand, O God, and say, what have you done? Those were words spoken by a trophy of grace. Believer, it is true that the Lord hates the one who loves violence with his entire being. However, the Lord loves with His entire being the one who loves His Son, you. The one who has kissed His Son and has taken refuge in Him. Rejoice to know, to truly know, that the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God loves you with with His entire being. Will you pillow your head on that reality tonight? Will you live as an individual, as a spouse, as a parent, as a child, as an employer or as an employee? In all the various spheres in which you live, will you live in light of that? Will you live in light of the reality that this one loves you? Well, unbeliever... The throne of judgment can become a throne of grace to you if you come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. In Psalm 7 verses 13, or excuse me, Psalm 7 verses 11 through 13, David writes, "God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword." He has bent and readied his bow. 
He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Now you might object hearing that after having heard Psalm 11 when the same language is used of the wicked. But there's one difference between these men and God, namely righteousness. The men who sought David's life, the men who sought his companion's life, were unrighteous lovers of violence. Men who transgressed the law of God and relished their transgression. But God is the righteous one, the morally upright, the just one. When he wets his sword, when he arms himself and is ready, when he releases judgment, it is good and right. The sinner is simply receiving what is due to them. And if you do not repent, you will receive that and it will be what is due to you. However, in Psalm chapter 2 verse 12, David writes, Kiss the Son. That is, come up to His throne. This throne that we've been talking about. Bow down to Him. Let your knees hit the floor. Let your face hit the floor. Plead the blood and righteousness of this king's son. For this king's son, his blood, his righteousness alone will cause you, will allow you, a sinner, to prevail with this God. If you do not come pleading the blood and righteousness of Christ, you do not have an audience with this king. You don't. Your righteousness isn't what's going to cause you to be accepted and forgiven before Him. It is the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Your righteousness is filthy rags before the King. But if you come, if you renounce all your goodness, all your accomplishments, if you turn from who you are and you turn from your sin to Christ, You will be blessed. You will be saved. You will be His. And I would, I would plead with you, unbeliever, whether you are young or old, whether you know your Bible back to front and you've been here as often as, as the doors are open or not, run to Christ today. Don't let this night pass. Don't let this hour pass. Don't let this moment pass. Run to Him now while you are in your chair. While Christ stands ready to receive you. Now, come and you will find acceptance. You will find forgiveness. You will find the lover of your soul. Heaven will rejoice over you, because you have come home. You've come home to a father who is ready, always oh, ready, to throw around you the robes of righteousness, to prepare the fatted calf. Oh, listen, the Lord Jesus Christ drank down to the dregs the cup of God's wrath. He did this so that sinners like you and I could hold up the cup of salvation and have it filled to overflowing. 
Hold it up tonight. So let me ask you. Can you say with David, in the Lord, in the eternal, self-existent, covenant-keeping God, I have taken refuge. He is mine. I am His. I have come to Him through the Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Can you come before His throne without fear and trembling as one who should expect judgment? Can you come before His throne as a child, welcomed, beloved? Years ago, probably the first six months that um, Chelsea and I were here at this church, during the prayer meeting, um, uh, a certain brother prayed out. And he prayed out this way. Father, apart from Christ, we come before your throne and we have only this to do. Cower in the fetal position. That is all. We have the certain expectation of judgment apart from Christ. But in Christ, we come. And we come boldly. Not because of anything in us. Not because of who we are. But because of who He is and what He has done. Oh, come to this throne tonight. Come to God in Christ tonight. Do not delay. Plead the blood and righteousness of Christ before this throne. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, these things that have just been preached are true. And they are trustworthy. And they are true and trustworthy because you are true and trustworthy. I plead with you, Father, along with all of your righteous ones, your saints here tonight, that each of us would flee to Christ, whether for the first or the thousandth time. Give us eyes to see Him, ears to hear Him, hearts to respond to Him. Oh, may there be a great harvest, both tonight and in the coming days in this little body. May there be a great pressing forward in holiness, both tonight and in the coming days for this little body. Father, while on others you are calling, while on others you are blessing, do not pass us by. Turn your face toward us in the Beloved and find all your cause in Him to do what is necessary for each soul here. I ask this all in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Have a good week.